Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. Today we're talking about anti-Semitism on campus, there's been movement on a long-running saga on student covered compensation, and we discuss how the sector is bracing for the prospect of a welcome week election. It's all coming up. And I, I do wonder whether there isn't, when we think about you know electoral reform, just have a look at some other countries and how they do it. Ours is still fundamentally based around property and place. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to read the HE Policy Map of the Week are three fantastic guests as always. Just back from Australia, it's Mary Stewart, Director of Leadership Development at Minerva, and former Vice-Chancellor. Mary, your heart of the week, please. Well, it's really difficult in February to think of a highlight of the week. It's still winter and, um, you know, even though the days are getting longer, we haven't seen the sun for at least a week. Um, so, um, I guess the, the best thing that's happened to me this week was I've launched my report on emerging leaders' support and needs in the sector. And that seems to have gone down quite well. So, um, I'm really pleased about that and quite proud to have got it out. In Wandsworth, it's Anne-Marie Canning, also known as AMC, Chief Exec at the Brilliant Club. AMC, your hire for the week, please. Hi, Mark. Well, first of all, none of my trains have been late, which is always a highlight. Um, but I'm going to go for meeting a particular head teacher from a school in Bedfordshire who is working across loads and loads of schools in his local area to make sure young people get an opportunity to hear about university. So it's just so wonderful when schools are so challenged to see schools from all different uh, you know, backgrounds and areas coming together to say, let's work together to create opportunities for young people. Shout out to Nigel Croft. And in Newcastle, it's Livia Scott, uh, Wonky SU's Community and Policy Officer. Livia, your heart of the week, please. My highlight of the week is definitely that there is a new season of Love is Blind on Netflix at the minute. So that's something I'm binging as soon as the weekend hits. Um, right. So we start the week with anti-Semitism on campus. Livia, walk us through what's going on. So this week, both in the Commons and within the University's Minister, Robert Halfon, they have all been discussing anti-Semitism in wider British society, but particularly this sense that it is worryly, worryingly prevalent on university campuses at the minute. And this comes after the Community Security Trust report last Last week that demonstrated that anti-Jewish incidents are up at record levels. I think it was around 200% on up on university campuses and some of the highest numbers on the CST's records. So from all of this, the government have now said that they are going to introduce a anti-Semitism quality seal, if you like, which is essentially it's essentially an anti-anti-Semitism charter. This kind of harks back to back in November, the DOV introduced their five-point plan to tackle anti-Semitism, which is when we kind of got first got wind of this of this charter or seal, as it's now being called. Um, the purpose of it will be to require universities to demonstrate how they're tackling instances of anti-Semitism, what training they're doing on it, how are they effectively communicating with Jewish students, and also that it, they have effective and robust complaints procedures in place. 
I mean, where this gets us to is that there is increased pressures now on university VCs to act and have zero tolerance approaches. Um, I think the question for me is that there's been charters or seals, if that's what they're calling them, like this before. We've had the race equality charter that ministers have actually pushed back on in the past. And their effectiveness, I think, is still to be confirmed for some for some things. Um, the other interesting thing, I guess, is that Halfon seems to be suggesting that OFS should log cases of anti-Semitism and harassment centrally and monitor how they're being dealt with, which is something OFS have really resisted in the past. So I think that will be interesting to see where we get to on this, as it seems to be something the government really wants to kind of push on and chuggle on with quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. And Lord Mann, who is the advisor to government on anti-Semitism, has been talking about it this week. Here's a clip. I raised some questions on the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill about whether or not there could be unintended consequences by shifting more extreme protests from the public realm onto the university realm, using the rationale that on the university realm there's an absolute freedom of speech. I'm sad to report to the House that my questions and warnings have proved to be true. Speaking to universities as I do every week, speaking to the Union of Jews students as I do most days, that is precisely what is happening. Right. Um, Where to start? Mary, why does the sector still have an anti-Semitism problem, do you think? I mean, it... It it is actually very long running, um, Mark, uh, I, and I I think it has got worse uh, because of 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 the situation. I think it is the case that for many in the higher education sector, they're unclear about what they should or shouldn't do in these circumstances. Um, for a long time. Uh, I, I'm afraid to say it. It was, you know, sort of in 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 uh, last century uh, when I started as a lecturer. I'm afraid to say it was kind of taken as as okay. You know, it it kind of it kind of was taken as okay. Um, it it is it is um, a complex matter. This relationship between freedom of speech and um, what is what is anti-Semitism and what isn't in certain circumstances, and I think students often don't know. I know some universities are now, as part of their induction, putting in training. Um, and I think that's important because I think sometimes it's inadvertent. But people feel strongly on both sides, actually, in, in, in all sorts of ways around this. And it's very difficult to get people to disagree well, to know how to disagree. And, and I actually think the sector hasn't yet fully understood what it should be doing. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, AMC, the, the, this, this highlights the tension, doesn't it, between obviously free speech and, um, you know, protecting people from harm we talked about this a lot on the podcast we've written about it a lot on the site and you know where is that where is that balance you know is there is there two sides of this question or you know is essentially robert halfman right that um the sector just needs to fall in line and you know do what it's told yeah i mean without a shadow of a doubt we're we're seeing people sort of playing off the freedom of speech and anti-semitism piece uh, in conversation but i'd challenge anyone to read the community security trust report and it, 
I mean, it's devastating reading. Um, we're talking really, really deeply unpleasant, frightening, uh, and in some cases, life-threatening um, actions on campus. Uh, you know, the the situation in particular in Leeds with the chaplain rabbi there, who's gone gone into hiding essentially. Um, I guess the other thing is also reading about our schools, which is another place where we've seen an explosion in uh, reported anti-Semitism. So, um, I think you know, reading the CST report, it is clear that we're in a particular moment where there does need to be action. I think one of the reasons um, uh, Robert Halfen and, and the sort of broader government team at the DfE are, are keen to take action is there's a very interesting interview with with Robert Halfen in the Jewish, Jewish Chronicle, where he describes vice chancellors seeming like rabbits in the headlights on this issue. And I think that's why we're seeing the quality seal and a whole range of action around it, which actually, if you read things like the Hansard um, report of the debate in the Commons on Monday is receiving quite a lot of support um, across political boundaries. This sense that the sector hasn't got a grip on this and doesn't know what to do and doesn't know how to approach it. And so that's why you're seeing, here's your five-point plan for sorting this out on campus. So they feel like they have to be interventionist because we're not, as a sector and not as individual institutions, coming up with a robust way of tackling this on campus. I mean, I guess the, the, the thing for me is that I was at a webinar with OFS last week on their kind of complaints procedures and, and how they're going to be regulating student unions on, on free speech. And one of the things that somebody asked was around what happens if students feel that the culture on campus is hostile, offensive and degrading and therefore is impacting their free speech. And OFS seemed to insinuate that this form of harassment complaint, the students would be able to make this complaint under the new free speech complaint scheme. So essentially, if something's kind of gone too far one way, students will be able to kind of make a complaint that their free speech and, you know, their general kind of lives have been impacted by by that. My I worry here that we've got, you know, from the government and understandably and kind of rightly so, saying to universities, you really need to sort this out. Um, my fear is that what they're insinuating doesn't match up with the legislation that's just gone through in the Free Speech Act, you know, pushing the adoption of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. There's questions legally how applicable that definition is. We saw in the in the David Miller case at Bristol about two weeks ago now. How applicable is that legally with this kind of free speech legislation? I think I just, it's, I understand from government what they're trying to do and I, I support that. I think it's just for universities, it's like, right, this is another thing you're telling me to do with no guidance from the regulator, just being told to sort it out with nothing to kind of help them sort it out. Yeah, I was going to come in. I mean, I think that 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 is right. You know, there's 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 no doubt at all that there is clearly some terrible things in certain universities and, and indeed, as Anne-Marie says, in, in, even in some schools now. Um, and this is part of a wider uh, problem in, in our society, um, which to me is quite shocking because of how long-levered it is, actually. Um, but I, I, I think the, the, the problem, as, as Livia says, is that um, people on campuses senior people who have responsibility for these matters are finding it very difficult to match up against the, the freedom of speech, um, uh, you know, legislation. And um, th there are certain things that they should just shut down. 
um, uh, anything where people are being threatened, um, it's it's quite clear that is 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 hate, and uh, is 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 has got to be dealt with. Um, but I think I think there are quite a number of of concerns that what we've got ourselves into is quite a muddle um, around what certain things are. So we're currently talking about anti-Semitism, but that also could apply in the debate around uh, trans and gender critical. It also um, could apply around Islamophobia. Um, You know, it, it, it is, it is, universities are places where, uh, People are trying to work out who the heck they are and what their position that they hold is. Um, we can't have hate speech. We must have freedom to be able to speak one's ideas and beliefs. But how this all plays out, um, I don't. I don't. I don't think um, a heavy hammer is the best solution. I think it's something that that has to be debated together. Um, but the problem around anti-Semitism for me is how long-levered it is. And, and actually, it's something that should have been dealt with a long time ago. This brings us on to Jonathan Grant, friend of the show, had a piece on Wonky this week about this concept of institutional neutrality. And, you know, listening to this conversation, you know, it just reminded me how much the sector kind of ties itself in knots on, on questions like this. Um, and some of that is because of this idea that has come from somewhere that, that you know, we can't intervene in these, you know, these complicated situations beyond our control, these social forces, these um, international conflicts. But then all of that can get swept away when, you know, for example, Russia invaded Ukraine and, you know, much of the sector put up Ukrainian flags, shone Ukrainian colours on their buildings and, and all those sorts of things, only for then, you know, when the, uh, the Hamas attacks in Israel happened last year, everyone was going to great pains not to say anything at all yeah, uh, yeah. for fear of for fear of offending anyone. And this this idea of neutrality has been kind of unhelpful in in trying to resolve where mm. you know how we how we find our way through, hasn't it? Yeah, I I think I think it is it is um, well in a sense what what um, is happening is that we kind of the sectors kind of speaking with forked tongue, if you like. Um, some things they 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 find it easy uh, to to take a stand on, um, and that's partly because um, it's easy. Um, uh, but you know, some things they, they 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 say, oh no, we have to be neutral about. So it's not it's not that they're neutral about everything. In a sense, if they if they were absolutely neutral about everything, um, that would sort of be okay. If you know what I'm saying in that context, yeah. it's that they're not actually. No, and, and arguably, arguably shouldn't be. I mean, Livia, you obviously work with our, our SU subscribers and this idea of, you know, kind of political neutrality or, or sort of general neutrality makes no sense at all, does it, in that kind of political environment? It makes no sense. The amount of student unions, it's interesting, literally just after Jonathan Grant's piece went up on the site on Monday, I've had about five different student unions be like, Livia, can we have a chat about this article? Um, and I'm like, maybe chat to Jonathan, he'd be quite helpful. But um, it's the thing that they're really struggling to get to to get right is that students are not neutral, academics are not neutral, people as a whole are not neutral, and I think it's it, it's that 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 Mary mentioned that you know s- students and staff are not neutral when it comes to kind of fighting for students' rights. Whether it's kind of I think Jonathan mentioned like visas for international students, planning permission or research and things like that. That I think for student unions and, and universities as a whole, they're now sat thinking, well, we've got some students who want us to say one thing, some students who want us to say another. And it's, 
you know, how can we host those difficult conversations and saying nothing, I think, you know, for fear of kind of reputational damage or upset or what or, or legal reasons, whatever it is, doesn't really help anybody. But I think it's how do we have difficult conversations at scale is something that, you know, I've been talking to various kind of charities that are doing this kind of community building work recently. And how do you have difficult conversations at scale, you know, with, with some universities with 30,000 students? It's all well and good being able to get 10 students in a room and you could do a really good kind of conversation there and help students share views in a safe space but doing that at scale with staff and everything everybody else involved is just I I don't know how universities can kind of start to tackle that yeah great Mark well I'm seeing Jonathan for a cup of tea after we've uh, recorded this podcast so Jonathan's article is really really interesting and I I recommend everyone goes and reads it traces the origins of of many universities and institutions um, around tackling injustices I think I think essentially we're in a really difficult period of history and you know that that shares Jonathan's uh, analysis um, whereby it's not even about the topic of the day in, in my mind it's about how you make the decision whether to have a position on a particular issue so let's just like take away all the issues like you, what you need is a set of principles and a set of behaviors in an institution about how you approach the issues of the day and how you come to um, a position on them and then how you communicate or take take action on them. Universities aren't neutral on many of the most pressing issues um, of of the current day, educational inequality being one of them, right? We have a whole regulatory system uh, geared up to make sure we're ensuring uh, students from less advantaged backgrounds get a chance to flourish at university. Um, That said, I do do worry a little bit about the point that Livia makes, which is like... (laughs) You could spend your entire time as a university employee or leader trying to discern a position on the uh, topics of the day within your institution. Like it's a really, really time consuming endeavor. And I think we'll see more and more universities sort of uh, using different approaches to having these conversations on campus, things like listening campaigns, but also things uh, that are more sort of deliberative democratic practices, panels. And, you know, we've just heard that potentially the next government is interested in in citizens' juries as well. I think we'll start to see um, universities approaching shared conversations in this way. I will just finally say moving from the university sector into the charity sector has been really, really interesting. You know, we are clearly governed by the Charity Commission. We don't make statements on things that aren't aligned with our mission uh, and our charitable objectives. Uh, and in some ways, it's almost easier in the charitable sector than it is in universities because they are in such a unique position institutionally. Um, so it's a, a gnarly one, but it's not going to be going away anytime soon. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Emma Maslin, an ESRC-funded PhD student at Durham University, and this week on Wonky, I've been blogging about what we truly mean when we talk about commuter students. The new addition of commuter students to the Office for Students Equality of Opportunity Risk Register reaffirms that they often have a poorer experience than their live-in peers, yet problems lie in how we conceptualise and define the student group. With an absence of a set definition, individual institutions have had to come up with their own tailored to specific institutional and regional contexts. This results not only in different definitions operating across the sector, but naturally influences the conversations we have around commuters. Specifically, we can never know for sure if we are all talking about exactly the same group of students. We know we've got a lot of commute students is a phrase commonly uttered in HE contexts, yet staff are often surprised to find that their institution lacks a commute student definition, particularly if they feel this mode of study applies to a large proportion of students at their institution. 
Anecdotally, it is easy to build up a sense of a commuter student body, such as the likely distances and time travelled by commuters, but really, without a definition in the subsequent data this produces, how do we know for sure? Right, the long-running saga over COVID compensation is heading to court. Anne-Marie, walk us through it. Yes, so some of you might remember this particular case, the student group claim um, against UCL, which is essentially a legal action over the disruption to learning uh, during the pandemic and then subsequent industrial action as well. Um, For those of you who've been following this quite closely, you'll know that last summer, the two parties were told to essentially go away and and engage in mediation and try and find a resolution. And unfortunately, that has ended. Um, They've not been able to find a resolution. And on Monday, um, they announced that it will be going back um, to the High Courts for consideration of full trial. Um, So just a quick reminder of of what this sort of uh, group action is. It's a group of students who are essentially taking action against UCL to seek compensation for the lost learning that they suffered um, over the past few years, both in terms of the pandemic and in terms of the recent uh, strikes as well. Right. So, Mary, if it does head to court in this quite dramatic way this 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 does have a potential to be a bit of a of a bellwether doesn't it um absolutely i i I think it it does and um it it's it's very sad that they haven't actually been able to um find a resolution um i mean i i i don't know altogether why um that hasn't worked but you you know what i'm seeing more and more is that people are turning to the courts in all sorts of ways and that sense of of what was you know we are a community and we can find ways to work through all of this is completely disappearing um, and we are finding ourselves needing to to work with legal judgment, which then have much wider implications. Um, and this is a classic uh, in terms of that, Mark. I think um, uh, it's it's most unfortunate that we're in the position that we're in. I think mm. I, I, I'm old enough to remember when higher education policy happened in um, you know, boring meetings in in Woburn House. Now it is it seems like it's a high court, it's employment tribunals. Um, yeah. I was reflecting the other day, if we'd set up Wonky in 2024, probably would have hired lawyers rather than policy wonks, um, looking at <laughs> cases every single week, deciding, yeah. deciding, uh, deciding policy. It's really, it's really quite depressing because the, the sector has no ability to kind of, you know, improve itself or, or kind of learn on a go or anything. You know, you just get, to, you, you get these kind of very fracturous and, and contentious court cases. It is. It's, it's tragic. It's, it, it really, and I, and I think it, it, it is starting to undermine, or perhaps already has undermined, um, that that sense of what we we all believe universities. When I say we all, I mean us on 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 this 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 uh, podcast believe universities are for, um, and 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 part of that what they're for is that we are a community together, and and we need to work out things together as that community. Um, and you know that's that's it's tragic that that you know this is yet another one which um, the legal uh, environment is having to sort. We all know that the the law has to be relatively 
blunt in terms of, of, of how it, it makes decisions. And that is often not the best way for a community situation. Yeah, I, I remember you, you writing years ago about the, the breakdown and consensus in, in higher education that happened, I don't know, sort of in the last 10, 15 years. Um, and I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's really stark, isn't it? I mean, yeah. L- Livia, back to this case, um, and, and I should notice, it's not just about UCL, there are a bunch of other universities involved and the, the lawyers are looking to expand it uh, to... So they say they say eighty other universities. There is obviously a you know an, an unresolved issue here in in terms of lost learning, um, but it is quite finely balanced, isn't it? In terms of what the arguments are, um, you know, from from the university side. Yeah, the, I think the argument. So before when when the judge kind of said that the, to try and create a satisfactory mediation route, I think my my lawyer terms are not up to scratch, but the. I think the argument from from UCL was that the the students involved should follow an alternative dispute resolution route, and they kind of suggested they'd reopen their own internal procedures so students could complain, or students could go through the office for the independent the office of the independent adjudicator too. I think the student group claim initially rejected this. They were very worried about the kind of capacity, and I guess just kind of I was thinking about it, you know that. OIA isn't really there or isn't in the business of, if you like, kind of settling legal cases and and legal precedents. Because I think a lot of this comes down to are universities okay in using these kind of false majeure clauses when it comes to, you know, the pandemic, industrial action is probably the most the most recent one we've seen. And I think that's the thing that on my end and kind of the student unions and, and students kind of watching this happen are quite interested to see if there will be some sort of resolution because most universities in their kind of plans at the moment say that they have this kind of force majeure clause that, you know, industrial action is unprecedented, they kind of can't plan for it and therefore aren't liable to kind of mitigate any any kind of compensation or alternative um, learning opportunities or whatever. And, you know, apparently the, the Competition and Market Authority have suggested, you know, that that's not really the case that industrial action for example as one of the things being talked about in this case is 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 very much predictable and I think maybe I'm looking forward a little bit too much but my brain is on you know we're probably going to see some sort of industrial action this semester or next semester what does this mean in terms of are we going to see more students kind of wanting to put group complaints over individual complaints like Mary said, turn and turn into lawyers because you know this isn't just about UCL. This is supposed to be kind of a sector wide thing. I think I don't know. I don't know if that's something we're going to kind of see more of from either student unions pushing or students pushing their student unions to kind of support them with. I think that that's the interesting bit for me. I mean, it, it strikes me that um, I mean, it's not it's not clear how many students are actually turning to these these other kind of individual cases or, or group claims. Are you know? I mean, lots of these lots of big numbers are being thrown around, but. Um, you're much closer to this than, than I live here. I mean, I, I'm just interested to know, you know, your sense of how many actual students are essentially turning to this as a, uh, a as a kind of way of kind of getting some recourse here. Well, it's really easy to sign up. Like I get the, I don't know if I'm just because I spend a lot of my time on like TikTok halls about higher education and um, because I'm a bit sad, but I get a lot of targeted ads for these kinds of not exactly this one but these kinds of student group complaints and it's really quite easy to sign up you kind of pop your email in um it kind of says are you were you a student during these this period and I'm like yeah sure I was um and I don't know I I worry that you know students are kind of popping their emails in and then just kind of going yeah sure let's go for it 
and how many of them are really kind of quite active and understanding what what they're signing up for, for starters. You know, I do worry, are we going to see essentially more and more people pushing students to get involved in this stuff rather than maybe going through internal university routes or kind of OIA stuff? I think there is a sense from students, particularly, you know, fee paying, particularly for me amongst international students in particular, because of the high fees that they pay to kind of want compensation. And when that's not quick, or kind of in the way that students would like it from their institutions, more and more, I think, are turning to these kinds of routes, because they're so easy. They're all over Instagram. They're, they're coming up more often than the student union Instagram page, for example. So mm. I, yeah, I, I do think that more and more students are kind of pushing on this especially because a lot of student unions did kind of this is how you can make a complaint or this is kind of if you feel that you've not um had redress of kind of lost learning time this is how you can do it a lot of student unions were saying they just didn't get anybody putting any complaints through because the process was arduous it was long you have to do it as an individual um or, or the students thought they had to do it as an individual whereas if you can just whack your email in and there's loads of other people that will kind of do the legwork for you, you can understand why students are turning to that. <laughs> I mean, I think with the UCL group action in particular, it's that double whammy, isn't it, of COVID and then industrial action. And I remember last summer, um, I stopped at a nice hotel for some breakfast one morning and there was a family there and they were um, they were going to graduation that day and they were talking about their son's experience over the past three years of his degree. And it was not the sort of conversation you would imagine on a graduation day, which is meant to be a moment of great celebration. It was, it was pretty glum and it was pretty depressing to overhear, actually. I think Livia's right. The behavioural um, sort of frame for taking a group action is totally different for students and young people. So if you want to complain individually to your institution, it's an individual almost you know it feels quite conflicting doesn't it you know you, you love your university but also you feel let down by it and you want to complain and going through that process feels lonely and potentially quite frightening and exposing particularly if you're currently enrolled whereas signing up for a group action where there's safety in numbers it feels at a distance you've probably graduated um uh, by now is totally different as a proposition and i think that's why they're pushing for a for a group litigation order so that all of the cases are batched together rather than being being considered on an individual basis so it's not surprising to me that the, you know the the sort of uh, word on the street is that the numbers are quite large in terms of the students involved um, in in the group mediation case um, but we'll see what happens when it gets back to the high courts I mean put it this way my sister graduated from an undergrad degree last year and I think it was me and Jim were on a meeting and she was in the room because I was at home and I was like you do realize that you could probably put a complaint in and she was like are you going to do it for me and I was like well I can help you like point you through the kind of procedure and she was like now I'm graduating in a few weeks what's the point so I, I like I just think it is she was like the it's too complicated I'm just I'm not bothering and I think that is where a lot of students get to when they're kind of they're about to graduate, they're like, oh, whatever. But if it's a case of popping an email in and everybody else on your course is doing it, that, that might change. It's the social norm. It's a social it's a social norming, right? You know, everyone's doing it. It's really easy to sign up. Like, why why wouldn't you pop your email into the website? Yeah, I can I can I can see that. And and if if the situation is that there hasn't been enough working together with students in the first place, then um 
then that that does become a kind of thing. Yeah, we can we can just do that. That's easy. Um, and I also get this thing that if it's you're an individual, um, you know, it feels like you you against the whole university. That that's that's pretty tricky. Um, but but I I still think it's it's regrettable that we are in a climate where. Um, and it's 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 I think partly to do with the fees thing, as Livia says. But we're in a climate where it is is becoming so transactional, and and the very purpose of of thinking about higher learning, um, and you know that that students are scholars just like their their lecturers, and they're in it together to find things together, is is just being completely lost. Um, but then I'm probably just too old. So much of students' lives takes place under the radar, yet it's students' encounters around campus, their confidence in independent learning and the pressures of juggling their work and personal commitments that shape how they engage with teaching and learning. To really enable students to thrive requires knowing about the full extent of their lives, not just the bits that universities can most readily see and touch. But time and money are in short supply for universities and students, and with no let-up on funding in sight, carefully choosing interventions that will help students to both survive and thrive has become more important and even tougher. Deepening our collective understanding of what is in universities' gift to influence and how to do the things that make a difference is vital. So at our Secret Life of Students event, we'll be interrogating the contemporary higher education policy questions through the student lens, bringing together sector leaders and managers, as well as student leaders and student union managers, to figure out how to respond in the student interest. What role should universities and SUs play in stoking or calming conflicts on campus? What are the expectations that we should place on students themselves to create a good learning experience? How are they learning and how can we both measure it and support it outside of the classroom. On the day, we'll round up key figures into the student experience from the past year and launch exciting new findings on the student experience beyond the classroom. That's The Secret Life of Students, London, 12th of March. Book online at wonky.com. See you there. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Right, so there's a prospect of a Welcome Week election. Mary, why should we be worried about this? Well, you know, we, we really don't know when the election's going to be. We just know that it's, it's, it's going to happen um, this year. And if it, if it were to happen at the kind of um, end of September, beginning of October, which, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of people who are now saying, well, possibly, 
possibly that could be the time, um, there's a real challenge for students um, to be registered uh, to be able to vote. And, and as we know, students feel really strongly, and as we've been talking about on this podcast, students feel really strongly about, about um, uh, political issues and they, 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 they think about these things. And it would be absolutely tragic if, if that whole group of people was disenfranchised, um, if it just so happened uh, that, um, you know, it was right at the beginning of, of term, uh, especially for those first-time voters. Yeah, yeah. So just in terms of this registration issue, Livia, I know you, you, you guys have been working on this. What, what can actually be done? So universities, under, the, under kind of OFS's condition of registration, I think it's E5, there's lots of different numbers in there. Um, but the providers should have systems in place to kind of facilitate easy registration of students as voters. So one of the things that we've been pushing, I think the brilliant people at Purpose Union have done some really interesting research they showed that one of the biggest reasons students don't register is not because they don't care, like people sometimes presume, but because they're so they're much more likely to move regularly compared to kind of your average citizen or resident. And one of the things that they, they're kind of suggesting is that universities should essentially do order enrollment. So when a student kind of registers um, in September or, or sometimes January, but generally September, um, they can kind of tick a box that they will be their information will be passed on to the electoral registry office and that they will be registered to vote with their kind of new address. And as Mary said, if there is a, a vote, for example, the beginning of October, the deadline could be around the kind of mid-September mark. And a lot of students won't be residents yet. They will be kind of due to move maybe a week later or tenancies starting towards the end of September. Um and you cannot register to vote, even if you're not, you can't register to vote um, for where you might live, even if you're going to be living there by the beginning of October. So it puts students, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of students potentially unable to vote. Um, so I'm really hoping for a slightly later election. Hmm. Well, there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's opinions divided about it, isn't there? Could be, could be several points in the year um, up to December or maybe even maybe even January next year so 2025 election but I mean if it was me I mean back back in my day in student politics I would have absolutely loved a election day on campus I mean the you know drumming up support the vibrancy the pageantry um, I mean on the other on the flip side of this AMC is that you know this could this could help really engage students in um, in politics couldn't it yeah I mean uh, an October election would be pretty terrible for engaging students and getting them out to vote. Remember, this is for students who are, you know, 18-year-olds off to university. This will be their first time voting in a general election. Uh, and we know it's going to be a big general election as well. So it would be a real shame for the election to be timed um, so it essentially disenfranchises thousands upon thousands of students. Um, actually, I got a bit nerdy um, looking into this. You know, 2019, we had the December general election. And I was looking at when we last had a winter election. I, you know, I got back to 1983 and then my train pulled into the station. So um, they're, they're not very common winter elections. Um, but I am really interested in how you could solve the voter registration piece. And it seems to me that uh, it would be entirely appropriate to have um, a sort of either auto enrolment or an anticipatory registration for students knowing that they're going to be living on campus or, or in another city or place. I think the other challenge for students as well is making sure that they've got uh, appropriate forms of ID for when they're turning up to vote. Now you have to have ID 
with you when you go to vote. We know lots of forms of student ID are, are not actually accepted at polling stations. And so there's a whole range of issues that we would want to sort of get across to make sure that students' voices get heard at the ballot box. I mean, I guess the thing for me is that if there was this was any other group of citizens that potentially being disenfranchised, I would like to think there'd be there'd be hell on. But when it's, you know, potentially students not being able to vote essentially on technicalities, you can't help but feel and I know a lot of the students I've chatted to feel like this is tactful. It might not be, but it, it feels that way to them. I think the bit that's interesting for me is, you know, getting a little bit nerdy as well, is that we've got new constituency boundaries now. Mm. So if you mm. look at like quite traditional um big student seats like my old constituency in Newcastle East, that the kind of Newcastle student vote, so generally Northumbria students, Newcastle students, is now being split across Newcastle upon Tyne Central and West and then Newcastle Newcastle upon Tyne North. So, you know, you've potentially got students voting in new boundaries. And I think if students can vote Students can potentially swing seats. I think there was the same for some of the, the the new Cardiff constituencies. I think it was potentially the Liverpool constituency as well. And we've, I think, like Mark said, this could be really exciting for a lot of students. You know, it, it is exciting if it's your first time or first time to vote. And I think my frustration is that actually a lot of student unions are are working with their universities or kind of local councils on this, and especially with auto enrolment. And for some reason, it's proven more complicated and long winded than it should be. Um, and my, my real fear is that even if we get a later election, for whatever reason, universities w- will say that we they couldn't auto-enroll their students to register to vote. And we've potentially got a bunch of students who, you know, in the, the joy of Freshers' Week, maybe getting registered to vote is not going to be the first thing on their minds. So I just worry that it's great if we can auto-enroll, but a lot of universities are saying that it's quite it's more complicated than it actually is. And I just fear that we're not going to get any students registered in the end. It's a real worry, actually. I mean, you know, I, 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 I hear what you're saying, and I bet you it's down data protection stuff that they're concerned about, Livia, which, you know, some of it um, obviously is is right. But I, I also am aware that some universities take um, a, a, a very risk-averse approach to a lot of that sort of stuff. And, and this is really important. It's important because it is for those students the first time they will be voting um, and you know we've got to give them that that uh, that opportunity that franchise opportunity when you think of you know historically how people have fought for that vote um, it's really important that people have it so I hope universities actually take that very seriously and try and make it happen the other thing to say of course is that um, this does particularly obviously affect uh, uh, university students but it affects younger people um, all round because they move a lot and they don't necessarily own property. People who own property uh, tend not to move so much and so they're much more likely to be registered to vote. And actually in other countries, they don't take the electoral registration via this kind of route at all. Um, actually, it's based much more on, on citizenship um, and, and right of residency. Um, and I, I do wonder whether there isn't when we think about, you know, electoral reform. Just have a look at some other countries and how they do it. Ours is still fundamentally based around property in place. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. 
Don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out about how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Mary and Marie Livia and Michael, who makes the show happen behind the scenes. We'll be back next week. Jim will be here. Until then, stay wonky. Stay wonky.